Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you all here. If you find a seat, that would be great. It's great to have you here worshiping us with us this morning. You know, I see a lot of uh, people who I don't know, so there's probably a lot of visitors and maybe some newcomers to our church who probably don't know who's up here, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Eric Gustafson, and I have with me the Weaver Sisters. <laughs> I said that on... I said that at practice, and of course, Jess just beamed, and Carly was like, really? <laughs> but we're glad to have you. You'll enjoy them. They sound great together. And then Al West and Doug Russell, and we're just here to lead you in worship. We're going to start with some rousing songs, one of which, the first of which is God is good all the time. And this is where we, we're going to practice the intro to this song. So I say, God is good, and you say, and then I say, all the time. All right, let's do it again. God is good. And God is good. I mean, and all the time. All the time. All right. Please stand. God is good. All the time. To the song of praise in this heart of mine. God is good. All the time through the darkest night is light to shine. God is good. God is good all the time. Here we go. God is good all the time.
behold he comes riding on the clouds shining like the sun as the trumpet calls lift your voice it's the year of jubilee and out of Zion's hill salvation
Well, good morning. Those of you who may not know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And we're glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in person or you're watching us online. And if you're, if you're new here, you know, a little bit about our church. Like, we want to be a community that's really about three things at the church. We want to reach people with the gospel. We want to grow to be like Jesus, and we want to serve others. And so if you have a, have a bulletin, right, there's opportunity for each of those things kind of listed in the bulletin, right? When it comes to reaching people, I'm firmly convinced that like, the way we reach people is not necessarily through all the programs that the church puts on, but just by being engaged in our community, right? And in this time of year, in this part of Wisconsin, right, there's ample opportunity for us to be engaged in our community, right? So we just encourage you right, to be out in the community doing things to get to know people, to build relationships, and to take the opportunity to share about Jesus as they come. So that's all I want to be people who grow. And so, in helping us grow to be like Jesus, a couple opportunities coming up. One, we have a membership class on August 14th. We already have a number of people signed up for, but if you're interested in joining us in a more formal way and kind of sticking your flag in the ground saying, I'm a member here, we invite you to join, join that class. Also, that following Sunday, August 15th, we'll have, we'll have baptisms down at Maple Lake. Our, our hope had been to have like an outdoor service down there, but a couple of complications with getting sound things figured out. I mean, we're going to have the service here on August 15th. It'll be here, but then immediately after the service, we will head down to the lake. We'll have baptisms, and then we'll have a, a picnic together at the church family. Right? Well, that's August 15th. We'll have baptisms. So if you're interested in being baptized, if you've never been baptized, I encourage you to reach out, and we can, we can arrange, talk through that, like what that means, what that looks like. And then just a couple opportunities to serve. Right? So um, we look for people who can be what we call building stewards, which basically hang around until everybody leaves at the end of the service and then kind of lock up the church, make, everything, make sure everything's good to go with the building on a Sunday morning. So if you're interested in that, you can contact the church office. The phone number for that is, is in, the, in the bulletin. Another way we want to encourage, especially our, our children to grow, is through VBS this coming week. And so to give us a little more information about that, I'm going to invite up Pastor Ian Stewart and Cheryl and Coach to come talk a little bit more about, about that. So VBS kicks off tomorrow night. We're super excited for it. It's going to be a uh, great week. Our theme is Living Water, and uh, this year for our missions project, um, we are supporting the Clean Water Project. Um, so if you want to help out with that, there is a board at the back in the foyer. Um, we are having a penny war, and currently the guys are beating the girls slightly. Okay, so if you want more info on that, take a look at the back. It ends the end of this week. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited. I'm going to hand it over to Sherilyn. I caught somebody putting silver coins in the wrong pot this morning. Dollar bills are great. Pennies are great. Silver coins go in the opposite gender because it, dis- it subtracts from the total. Just clarification. Um, Can I have everybody here that is helping with VBS stand? 
And there's more than that that aren't here. Come on, Lori, you helped. <laughs> but there's more than that. It takes a lot of hands. Thank you. You can be seated. It's, it takes a lot of hands to get VBS going, and I really appreciate those of you that have volunteered your time. Also, our theme is Living Water. You can only imagine what all that entails. If you are here and you have children in the age group, um, please sign them up for VBS. We'd love to have them. It's from 545 to 815. I think that's it. Sherilyn's been doing a great job this year. We're excited for it. It's going to be, it's going to be a great year. So um, with that, we're going to have um, Tim pray for VBS. And, uh, yeah. Will you pray with me? Father God, we praise you for the work you're doing and through people like Pastor Ian and through Sherilyn and through all the people who stood up who are graciously giving of their time to to see your kingdom advance by allowing children to hear the good news of Jesus, both children who have been in our church and who have heard it before, but who can hear it again and grow through hearing it again, but also through children in our community who may have never heard this message, the good news ever before, who will come and hear it for the first time. And so we're thankful for the way you have worked, that you've gifted these people who are serving this week to serve and to advance your kingdom. And we do just pray for this week that as children come, that their hearts would be prepared to hear the message of the gospel and to grow in their faith or to accept Jesus for the first time. And we pray for the volunteers that you give them energy and endurance for a week filled with interacting with kids. Pray there be good health and no major issues um, injury-wise or health-wise in the coming week and that you would, above all, be glorified through all that takes place in VBS this week. God, as we enter into the rest of our worship time this morning, pray that you would still our hearts, that you would prepare us to, to hear from you and to sing praise to you as we sing songs and as we hear your word. Would you be at work this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that I'll turn it back over to our worship team. So I have a question for you. What's the biggest crowd you've ever been a part of? Chances are it was in a big arena, sports arena or a stadium. There was lots of people. And if you remember, whenever the home team does well, what happens? Everybody yells and it's a roar, is it not? Well, uh, I, this next song is going to ask you to remember the feeling that that being part of that massive sound and crowd is like. We're going to learn a new song. It's called Hymn of Heaven. It's by Phil Wickham. It's a brand new song. I think uh, it will become a classic. And it uses the imagery of a big crowd and the roar of a big crowd. And so... Keep that in mind as we get to the end of the song. You'll, you'll see that come up and recognize that, you know, this song is the hymn of heaven. The imagery is of around the throne of God in heaven. But, you know, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has come. 
And so we've got 150 or so people here. We're going to make our own little roar. But all around the world, there are other little congregations and big congregations that are making their own roar. The saints and angels in heaven are making a roar. And God is hearing the whole shebang at once. So we are part of that. So enjoy that. So, um, uh, yeah, so that was what I wanted to say. So um, the, the singers would come up. So we are going to, uh, well, I'll ask you to stand. And uh, this new song is uh, new to you, probably most of you, but it's easy to catch on. So you just start singing along with us when you've learned it. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. There will be a day when all will bow before Him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with He who died and rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. And Every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear, but in the end we'll see that it was worth
Father, you truly are great. And would it be true that our, our souls would sing continually reminding ourselves of how great you are. Now, would that be a constant refrain of our soul as we remind ourselves and sing praise to you of your greatness. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so it's been a, a fairly exciting week for me. Like you, you may be aware, the the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA championship last Tuesday, right? and like as much as I maybe had some qualms with some professional sports things, like my inner being can't help but be excited by like professional sport team from Wisconsin doing well, right? And so, like, for someone, like, who grew up obsessed with Wisconsin sports, like I was, like, it's been kind of a surreal time, right? Like, because, like, the static, like, the default operation of my brain has always been, like, well, the Brewers and the Bucks are going to stink, but the Packers will be good, right? Like, that's just been how I've always thought. But it's been kind of surreal to, like, watch the Bucks win the NBA championship and to see the Brewers be in first place in their division, but then the Packers possibly facing like a, a hard year, depending on how things shake out with the quarterback who shall not be named. Right? Like, <laughs> like it's just, it's everything upside down, it's backwards. Like, anyway, like, needless to say, I spent a fair amount of time this past week like, watching that game and then reading articles and watching highlights from that game, which is like an exciting time. And, like, one of my favorite things that I, I watched in watching those highlights was like to see video of what they call the Deer District down in downtown Milwaukee. And this this Deer District, it's this area outside of the arena where the Bucks play where like people who don't have tickets could gather together and watch the game. And like city of Milwaukee officials estimated that something like sixty five thousand people gathered in this Deer District to watch the Buck play the night they won the championship. And so you can see a picture here of like that with the crowd outside of the arena, like watching the Buck play. And every once in a while, like when the Buck did something good, like the TV broadcast would cut to a video of the Deer District and the scene that people celebrate. And like there'd be the part of my brain that says, be jealous and be like, man, I really wish I could be there at this moment. Like I wish I could be with that crowd of people celebrating. I feel that, and then, like, a second later, another part of my brain would kick in and would say, like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, first of all, you, like, you hate crowds. And, like, you're not exactly the, like, jump around and celebrate and scream type of person, right? So, like, it didn't, I actually don't, wouldn't want to be there. Like, it just made me incredibly uncomfortable. And, in fact, I know that because I found myself in a, a similar situation once. Well, back when we lived in Louisville, I, like, for a job, like, hung out with a guy who had, who had Down syndrome, right? And we'll call him, so we'll call him Trevor. Right? And so, once, he wanted to go downtown Louisville to a, kind of a similar sort of thing, like Louisville's equivalent of the Deer District, and watch Team, UF, Team USA play in the World Cup, right? And so we get down there, there's not 60,000 people, like, it's not quite that big, but there are probably 10,000 people all packed into this small area watching these giant screens, show the World Cup game. So we're like packed in, like shoulder to shoulder. And I'm just miserable. 
Like, like I've never had so much physical contact with random strangers in my life. Like, and then, like, to make matters worse, like, Team USA loses because it's soccer and they're Team USA. <laughs> and, like, like, three things you need to know about Trevor. Right? One, when he gets, ups- when he gets upset, right, he gets super determined and stubborn. Like two, he's incredibly strong for his size. And three, he doesn't have great social skills. Right? And so Team USA loses. I mean, he was all in on Team USA, so he gets upset. So he gets super stubborn and determined. He decides, we've got to leave right now. Like, I've got to get out of here. And so he just starts forcing his way through the sea of 10,000 people. Right? He's just a super strong, small little guy just pushing his way through, like, not caring who he offends, just forcing his way through. And I'm, like, stuck behind him, trying to catch up. Like, like knowing he, he doesn't know where the car is, but he's, like, on his way somewhere. And so, like, I can't lose him. Like, it's one of the most stressful moments of my life. Like, I, I don't want to be fu- pushing my way through. I don't want to be rude, but i got to keep up with that guy. And it was just super uncomfortable. Like, massive crowds of people just generally, like, not my favorite things in the world. But Jesus finds himself in the midst of a massive crowd this morning. So we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. There's also one in the seat in front of you if you need that. So we're in Luke chapter 8. In the last two weeks as we've gone through this chapter, we've been walking with Jesus and the disciples through, like, what has to be one of the craziest days in all of history. First, on this day, they, they get in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they're sailing across on this, on this massive storm, like a storm that seems destined to kill them, comes up. But then Jesus just speaks right? and the storm is calmed. Right? So that's weird thing number one. Then they get to the other side and they immediately encounter this demon-possessed man who's living naked in the tombs. And again, Jesus speaks and the demons are cast out, and the man is restored. But in response to this great healing gift, the people on that side of the lake reject Jesus, and they send him away. Until they set sail again, and they're coming back across the lake. They come back to the the other side of the lake, and they're greeted by another chaotic scene. That's where we pick up this morning. And in fact, we can tell this part of the same day, the same day Jesus calmed the the same day he cast out the demon, still the same day. And so we pick up in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And so Jesus and the disciples get back from this adventurous boat ride, from casting out demons, and they just they can't catch a moment of peace. They get back to the other side, and there's a, a huge crowd waiting for them. In a couple of verses, Luke going to tell us this crowd was so big that they almost crush Jesus. These people are just packed together, packed in tight, shoulder to shoulder, trying to see Jesus. They want to be close. Just like the fans in the Deer District wanted to be close to see the Bucks game. And so it's a huge crowd. There are people everywhere, which makes what happens next astounding. Verse 41, a man named Jairus a synagogue leader came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. So this man, Jairus, he's a, he's a synagogue leader, not a Pharisee, not like a religious leader, but a synagogue leader who's like in charge of overseeing the, the synagogue and like 
structuring things. So he's like very respected in the community. So he's a highly respected role. And because of that, he's probably a very dignified type of man. Right? He's very upstanding and dignified. And then this man, he's dignified and respectable in front of all these people who come. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's begging for help. This dignified, respected man takes this very undignified action. So you just picture like, you know, if you're maybe on like some busy street in New York City and some fancy lawyer in some fancy suit comes out of a building and like goes and throws himself at the feet of some street preacher. And it's like kind of the scene. But we see why Jairus acts this way in the next verse. Verse 42. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And there's like one person who like triggers my empathy in the Bible. Right? It's, it's Jairus. He's, he's a leader in a place of worship and he's a father to a little girl. And so I just feel like I can, I can relate to him on some level. And, like, I don't know if he's like me in this, but me, like, I, I don't like drawing attention to myself, even though I stand up here every week. I don't know if it makes sense, but I don't. Like, I don't like drawing attention to myself. I don't like making a scene. Like, I'm, I'm scared of embarrassing myself right, to a fault sometimes. Like, I'm too self-conscious. I can be too concerned what people think about me. It's like, I just don't like making a scene. Right? But if there's one thing that can make me risk embarrassment, that can make me risk losing some of my dignity. Like it would be doing whatever, whatever I could right, to save one of my daughters. And that's what Jairus does here. Right? He lays aside all concern about dignity, all concern about pride, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he begs for help, knowing that Jesus is the only person who can save his little girl. And Jesus agrees to help him. Verse 42, again, the rest of it says, and Jesus was on his way. The crowd's almost crushed him. So Jairus is on his way to heal, or Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. He's, he's agreed to do it. He's on his way. But as they're making their way to Jairus' daughter, like the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They're almost crushing him. Like he's making it harder to get through. Like Jesus being bumped here and there. He's rubbing shoulders of people left and right. But Jesus is fighting his way through on his way to see Jairus' daughter. And like if I put myself in Jairus' position here, you can kind of feel like both like this flicker of hope right, that, oh, Jesus, Jesus is coming. He's really agreed to help. But also like this sense of growing frustration with the crowd. Like, like didn't they hear? Like, my daughter is dying. Like they, may, they may have needs, they may have concerns, but that they aren't as urgent as mine. They need to get out of the way. Like their concerns aren't life and death. Why won't they move so that Jesus can hurry to my house and heal my baby girl? And then, what must have been the worst possible scenario for Jairus happens? Something distracts Jesus. Verse 43. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And so normally when we, when we see miracles in the Bible, they're 
they're often these like self-contained kind of discrete stories. Like there's one miracle over here, we read about it, we learn what we can, and there's another miracle over here. Like, but this, in this place, like the two miracles, two miracles kind of intertwined together. There's one miracle interrupting another miracle. On the one hand, these, these miracles seem radically different from each other. Right? Like, at least for me, like the story of Jairus' daughter is one that I can, I can relate to. I can empathize deeply with. It's the story of life and death of a little girl. Right? And meanwhile, this, this story about a woman who's been suffering from bleeding for 12 years is something I can't directly relate to. Right? And yet, in some ways, like, this woman... And Jairus' daughter faced similar fates. Well, this woman isn't facing physical death like Jairus' daughter. But to be afflicted with her condition in that culture was really akin to relational death. Like, in that culture, when you were suffering from bleeding like this, you were considered unclean. And because of that, you weren't allowed to touch anyone lest you make them unclean too. So you weren't allowed to touch anyone. You weren't allowed to participate in religious or community life. And she's been dealing with it for 12 years. And we all felt, to some degree or another, like bemoaned the isolation brought on by by COVID. Like you would hear these stories about people who didn't see or hug their, their kids or their parents or their grandkids for like 12 months or more. And like you'd hear how much heartbreak and pain that caused. That was 12 months. This woman hasn't been hugged for 12 years. Can you imagine what that would do to a person? 12 years, no physical contact. How isolating and disconnecting that must have felt. I'm not the most touchy-feely, huggy-duggy, lovey kind of person in the world. But my wife and daughters were gone for 10 days like a week and a half ago, or last, last week, they got back. And like by the time they got home, like even I was ready for hugs. Like, and that was 10 days, and I'm not super touchy-feely. Like, I can't imagine what 12 years for this woman must have been like. 12 years with no physical touch, no hug from anyone. She was desperate for healing. And in fact, like in Mark's version of this story, he tells us that she was so desperate that she had spent all her money on doctors, but they had been unable to help. She was so desperate to be healed. She spent all she had, but nothing had worked. And so now, like, not only is she suffering from this bleeding, with all the, the physical effect that would come with that, not only is she suffering from the shame her condition would bring, not only is she suffering from relational isolation caught by her condition, but she's also broke. She's destitute. So she, she may not be facing, the, facing physical death like Jairus' daughter, but in her condition, she doesn't have much to live for. But she had somehow heard about Jesus, the way he had healed others, and so she decided to take one last chance, one last risk. And let's be clear, it was a big risk. As we said, like anyone she touches would be unclean. And here she is forcing her way through this massive crowd of people. If anyone recognized her, there would be serious repercussions. People would have been irate to know that she had interspersed herself in that crowd. 
she would have been even more humiliated, more cursed, and even more rejected than she already was. She was so desperate, she decided to take the risk. So she doesn't want to be noticed. She doesn't want to draw attention to herself. She doesn't want to even bother Jesus. Like her plan is just to slip in behind Jesus, quickly touch the edge of his cloak, and slip away and hope for the best. So she does it, and for a minute it seems like her plan is working better than she possibly could have hoped, than she ever could have dreamed. She touches Jesus' cloak, just the outer edge of his garment, and immediately she's healed. She's somehow aware of her healing immediately, and her, like, her bleeding stops, and it's a miracle. Just imagine that the the euphoria, the joy this woman must have felt in that moment, like knowing everything worked better than she could have dreamed. And now all that's left for her to do is to slip back into the crowd to get away. And that shouldn't be that hard. Surely in a crowd this size, there's no way that anyone could have noticed her or just touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. But then Jesus totally upends her plans. Verse 45, Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Like Peter's like, what do you mean who touched you? Like Everyone's touching you. There are people everywhere. But verse 46, But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that brings us to the first kind of big takeaway of this passage, which is that Jesus uses his power for the good of those who have faith. And this continues with a series of stories where Jesus uses his power. He displayed a power over the natural world by calming the storm. He displayed a power over the supernatural world by casting out the demons and the demon-possessed man. And here he displays a power over sickness and in death by healing this woman. You may quibble with that phrasing. Did he really heal her? Or did she just touch Jesus and happen to be healed? It doesn't seem like Jesus had much active choice in the matter. Like that's, on a surface reading, that's what it seems like. And it's possible that that's what happened. Right? Jesus didn't know until after the fact that he had healed this woman. But based on like, what we've seen from Jesus up to this point in Luke, like, I don't think that's what happened. Right? Like, this is the same Jesus who knew Simon the Pharisee's thoughts at the dinner party. Right? This is the same Jesus who knew the thoughts of those who were upset when he forgave the sins of the paralytic man. This is the same Jesus who knew where to tell Peter to let down his net to catch a massive catch of fish, even though Peter caught nothing all night. Like Not much happened in the book of Luke that's beyond Jesus' notice. And just look again at verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And just prompt the question in my head, like, why did this woman suddenly realized she couldn't go unnoticed. There are people everywhere. What would ever make her think, oh, she's going to be busted? Like, why would she think that? And the only answer that makes sense in my head, and like, I'll admit, like, I could be wrong about this, this is not 
clear in the Bible, but the only answer that makes sense in my head is that like Jesus was doing something to clearly indicate that she, he knew that she had touched him. In my mind, like I imagine like Jesus like looking at her, making eye contact, staring right at her when he says, who touched me? And then when no one responds, he like looks even deeper into her eyes and asks again, like, who touched me? Until the woman realizes that he knows and that he's waiting for her to confess. That there's, there's no getting away. Like, well, why did Jesus do this? Like, why did Jesus wait for this woman to confess? And I think it's because Jesus wants to make clear right, that he is not some religious totem. He is not some good luck charm that you can just kind of touch and expect good things to happen. Jesus is not a a rabbit's foot or some kind of religious icon that gives power to anyone who touches it. Jesus is not after some kind of mystical religiosity where if I just say the right word and do the right actions then I can manipulate God into doing what I want for me. That's not what Jesus came to bring for us. He came to usher us into a relationship with him. And you don't get a relationship with Jesus by touching the edge of his cloak and then slipping away. So instead, Jesus gives this woman the opportunity to glorify God by announcing what had happened. And And the woman responds by telling the crowd why she had touched Jesus and how she had been healed she tells the crowd of this incredible display of Jesus' power. And then Jesus responds by saying, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And two things that stand out in this statement that Jesus makes. When he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. First, he calls her daughter. And just think of what this must have meant for that woman. This woman who has been so disconnected from community and relationship for the past 12 years. And now here is Jesus calling her daughter, welcoming her into the family of God. All those years, cut off from any kind of fellowship in the community, but now Jesus calls her daughter. The second thing that stands out is that Jesus says this woman is healed because of her Faith. It's because of her faith that Jesus healed her. Jesus uses his power for the good of this woman because of her faith. It's a pattern that's repeated over and over again in the Bible. Jesus uses his power for the good of those who have faith in him. So the question is, do we really believe this? If you've placed your faith in Jesus, do you believe, like really believe that he has limitless power to do good for you. That he has power to heal you, to forgive you, to transform you. If you have faith in him, right, the, the message of the Bible is he is able. He uses his power for the good of those who have faith in him. But you, you might object. Like, it's hard for me to believe that. Right? Because I've turned to Jesus before, and he hasn't come through. I've had this need. I've had this constant prayer. Like maybe, it's, maybe it's a chronic illness or a pain. Maybe it's some kind of broken 
relationship that you've prayed for over and over again. Maybe you've prayed for some kind of help in overcoming some kind of constant addiction. And you've pleaded and you've pleaded and Jesus hasn't seemed to answer. And you're ready to throw in the towel. You've all but given up hope. If that's you this morning, if you're walking through that right now, or you're waiting for Jesus to answer, and it doesn't seem like he is, then the rest of this passage is for you. Because as great as Jesus' power was in healing this woman, it also caused a problem. Look at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And I can't imagine in that moment what Jairus must have felt. Like the way that Jairus is told, don't bother the teacher anymore, like gives this, gives this impression like that he's been kind of urging Jesus along, kind of reminding him, like, come on, Jesus, we've got to go fast, we need to hurry. And he's seen Jesus kind of delay to talk to this woman, <clears throat> and now his greatest fear has been realized. If I'm Jairus in that moment, all I could think is, like, like why did you stop? Why did you stop to heal this woman? Like, it's, it's great that she's healed and all, but her situation was not life and death. You could have come back later. And now because you delayed, my baby girl is dead. Like, why, Jesus? Why didn't you hurry? Why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you rush as soon as I begged you to come? Why? We've all probably felt that in one way or another at some point in this life. We're like, why won't Jesus come? Why won't he answer? Why won't he meet my need now? If you're feeling that this morning, just notice how Jesus doesn't respond until all hope seems to be lost. So the person comes and he tells Jairus that his daughter is dead, and then Jesus speaks. Verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go with him, in with him, except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And here's here's the big takeaway from the second part of this passage. Jesus uses the power for the good of those who have faith like he did for the one who had the bleeding. But like he does here with Jairus, he uses his power for a good of people who have faith on his own timeline. And sometimes, Jesus' timeline doesn't make sense to us. Surely it didn't make sense to Jairus before Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. Like, why was he waiting? But that's the way that Jesus operates. He wants us to reach a point where it is abundantly clear that we can do nothing for ourselves. We feel our absolute dependence on Him. 
Jesus will come through. Jesus will win. Jesus will use his power for the good of those who have faith. But it will be in his timing. And what we, we need to understand that his timing isn't always even in this lifetime. Like, I don't think it's surprising to learn that like, Jairus' daughter's experience was incredibly unique. Like, this is not the sort of thing that happens every day. And even she would eventually die again. So the point of this story right, is not to give us hope that our loved ones will be resuscitated after they die to return to this life. But the point of this passage is to show us that Jesus has power even over death, over all death. That the death in this life is not the end of the story for us. That one day he will say to each and every one of us, my child, get up, and our spirits will return. They did for this woman. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Him, who have trusted in Him for the forgiveness of our sins, we will be raised from the dead and given glorified bodies. Bodies that never hurt, that never get sick, that will never die again. This girl was resuscitated back to this life, but we will be resurrected to eternal life. That is the ultimate good that Jesus uses His power for. He may use His power to, to bless you in this lifetime. He may use his power to heal you. He may use his power to give you victory over some sin you've been battling. But for reasons we can't understand, like he may not. Like there may be struggles that go on for this entire lifetime. But what is promised to us from this passage and from the Bible is that for all who trust in him, we can look forward to the day when Jesus returns and calls us all to rise from the grave, to live in eternal glory with him. The good that Jesus uses his power for is not primarily our earthly good, but for our eternal good. I think the life of the Apostle Paul is a a powerful example of this. Paul, formerly Saul with a Pharisee, he's out, he's persecuting and killing Christians. When suddenly Jesus shows up and reveals himself to Paul, and Paul has the powerful conversion experience, and he's transformed. He's transformed into like this incredible missionary, this incredible follower of Jesus. He, he does whatever Jesus tells him to do. He goes wherever Jesus tells him to go. Like, he is in many ways a model Christian. So you would think, right, that if ever there's anyone where Jesus would use his power to bless him in this life, it would be Paul. And yet Paul recounts how he had the thorn in his flesh from Satan. We don't know what that thorn was for sure, but Paul tells us that three times he pleaded with Jesus to take this thorn away. But Jesus' reply was not to take that thorn away. Jesus' reply was to say, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Basically, Jesus is saying, like, it may not make sense, but it is for your good that you continue to go through this hardship. And then Paul ends up being imprisoned for following Jesus. We're pretty sure from church history, side in the Bible, we're pretty sure he's ultimately killed 
for following Jesus. And yet through all those trials, in the face of imprisonment, whatever the thorn was, Paul never lost hope. He never lost his faith that Jesus would use his power for his good. And something he wrote to the Thessalonians sums up why he believed that so well. He writes, Brothers and, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will be with the Lord forever. Encourage one another with these words. That's my, that's my hope for this morning. That if you're going through some trial. I hope that Jesus will use his power and he will help you through that trial. He will rescue you from that trial and I will pray fervently with you for that. But if, like he did for Paul, Jesus decides to let you continue through that trial, my hope is that you'd be encouraged that even that trial is for your good and for Jesus' glory. And above all, my hope is that you be encouraged that even death cannot stop Jesus' plan for good for you if you have faith in him. Jesus will use his power for your good if you have placed your faith in him. It may not be as fast as you would like. It may not even be in this lifetime. But Jesus will use his infinite power for your good when he comes again and raises us from the dead to eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter what trials we face in this life, there is great hope because of what Jesus did. That Jesus came and he lived his sinless life and he died on the cross on our behalf and he, you raised him from the dead. So by placing our faith in him, we look forward to the day when we too will rise to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with you. Father, we pray to you that even, even death cannot extinguish that hope. We praise you that you are working things for our good, and we praise you that you are wiser than us to know what it ultimately is for our good. That you do not have short-term ideas of what good is, but you have an eternal perspective on what is for our good. We trust your infinite wisdom 
even when it's hard, even when it means walking through trial. Thank you that you are trustworthy, that you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our trust, even in hard times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go, would you go feeling the encouragement that Jesus will use His infinite power for your good. You are dismissed.